Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our short series on the book of Leviticus with James Jordan, and here he's going to be discussing the role and function of the priests. If you are in the Birmingham, Alabama area, we would like to invite you to our upcoming regional course on the subject of hope. This will be held on January 28th and 29th. That's a Thursday evening and a Friday. It will be held at Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, please check out the links in the show notes. We really hope that you enjoy and are edified by this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan teaching on the priests in the book of Leviticus. In this lecture, we want to look at Leviticus 6 through 10 and the priesthood in Israel and their portions and responsibilities regarding the sacrifices. And that's the concern of these chapters. And we will begin with chapter 6, verse 8. Up to this time, we have had the laws for the sacrifices addressed to the congregation as a whole, when the sacrifices are brought and what the layman does in connection with them. Now we go over the same ground, talking about the priests, but with a difference. The point here is not only the priest's responsibility, but also what the priest is to be given out of the sacrifices. And this entire section is the fifth part of the covenant structure. This is the new man who will administer the kingdom that's been set up. So just as we have in the creation of the world, When God rests from his labors, he turns the work over to man. So here we have the rules for the men who will administer this garden, the tabernacle. Now the first one is the first speech of the Lord has two parts, giving the law of the burnt offering and the law of the cereal offering. And these have to do with transcendence and worship. You'll find a chart in your notebook for Leviticus 6, 8 through 10, 20. And... This will connect up with the basic covenant creation model that we're using as our grid for the study of the book of Leviticus. Now, the first law is called the law of the burnt offering, and it's in chapter 6, 8 through 13. Command Moses and his son, saying, this is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering itself will remain on the hearth of the altar all night until the morning, and the fire on the altar is to be kept burning on it. And then the priest is told to take the ashes, put them next to the altar, scrape them off the altar, and then change his clothes and take them out to that clean place outside the camp and dump them there. Then it says in verse 12, The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it, it shall not go out. The priest shall put wood on it every morning and lay out the burnt offering on it, offer up and smoke the fat portions of the peace offerings and others. Fire will be kept burning continually on the altar, it's not to go out. Now this is really talking about the daily morning and evening uh, evening and morning sacrifices. Someday I'll begin to think biblically and get that right the first time. And also the weekly sacrifices and the monthly sacrifices. And it says the priests had to make sure that the fire did not go out during the night. Why? Well, because it was God's fire. As we'll see later on in this lecture, God starts the fire on the altar. It's his fire that comes down from heaven and it represents his judgment. It's not man's fire representing man's judgment. It's God's fire representing God's judgment. The altar here is called a hearth. And this is part of a general pattern that we looked at in our studies of Exodus 
that once you build your house and your enemies are defeated, then you sit down, take a rest, kick your shoes off your feet, strike up the fire on your hearth and relax. And that is what God does here. The Egyptians have been defeated. The tabernacle has been built. He's got some servants in to take care of the work. And God is going to relax and rest, enter Sabbath rest inside his tabernacle enthroned and he's going to start the fire up on the hearth. The fire represents God's judgment, not man's, and it must come from him. So that fire has to be kept burning. If it goes out, how are you going to start it up again? God would have to start it up again himself. Then we have the law of the cereal offering, which is given in verses 14 to 18. This is the law of the cereal offering. The sons of Aaron shall present it before the Lord in front of the altar. One of them shall lift up from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering with its oil and its incense that is on the grain offering, and he will offer it up in smoke on the altar, a soothing aroma, as a memorial portion of the Lord. And what's left of it, Aaron and his sons can eat. They can cook it up. It will be eaten as unleavened cakes in the holy place. They will eat it in the court of the tent of meeting. can't take it out and eat it somewhere else. They have to eat it in the garden tabernacle. It will not be baked with leaven. I've given it as their share for my food offerings. It is most holy, like the purification offering and the reparation offering. Every male among the sons of Aaron may eat it. It's a permanent ordinance throughout the generations from the food offerings of the Lord. Whoever touches them shall become consecrated. Well, the grain offerings, remember, the cereal offerings, represented the fealty gifts that the people brought to God as their king of kings. And God gives, uh, after taking his part, he gives it to his servants who are managing his household, and they are mediators between him and the people. The last thing we notice here is that whoever touches them becomes consecrated. That means that if a layman was out offering his own sacrifice in the area and he got in and touched one of these holy cakes that's been made from the cereal offering, then he becomes consecrated. Now, what does that mean? He doesn't become unclean because this is holy food. He becomes holy in some sense, and yet he's not a priest. Now that's extremely dangerous. Because when you become holy, when you become a priest, you come under much stricter regulations. You can draw nearer to God, and that's a much greater threat. Remember, if the priest commits a sin, the sin defiles and defaces the golden altar. And if you become consecrated and holy, then you come under those stricter rules. And yet, because you're not a priest, you're not protected. Now, in a little while, we'll look at the ordination of Aaron and his sons, and we'll see the elaborate procedures that were gone through to make Aaron and his sons priests. But you haven't been through those procedures, and you're not a priest, and yet you have presumed, even accidentally, you've come in contact with this holy stuff. And now... The holiness has gone on to you, and you become holy, but you're not able to stand the danger. And so you've got to become deconsecrated. And the way that's done is by washing your garments and yourself to get the holiness off of you and get out there back where a layman belongs. All of this has to do with the sin of presumption, which the Bible speaks about from Genesis to Revelation, because presumption was the sin of Adam, seizing responsibilities that are not yours probably the most common of all sins and the one that the Bible deals with over and over and over again, the sin of rebellion, of presumption, of taking on responsibilities that you have not been given. Well, here, symbolically, that's what happens. 
And it would be terrifying to be suddenly under all the judgments of the priests, but without any of the protection. So you'd want to be deconsecrated and go back to your lay status. Well, this first section has to do with God's transcendence and man's worship of him. Transcendence emphasized by the perpetual fire of judgment and worship emphasized by the bowing of the knee and rendering fealty and tribute to God as king of kings. Then we come to the second speech in this section. The Lord spoke to Moses, verses 19 to 23. And basically what he said there is that on the day that Aaron and his sons are anointed, they are to offer grain offering, cereal offering. And it will be offered from that day forward every morning and every evening for themselves. It's their tribute. And it comes out of the part that's been set aside for them. The people bring their tribute to God, and Aaron offers it, and then takes what's left for himself. But then Aaron and his sons have got to offer part of that as their own tribute. And what's different this time is, verse 22, By a permanent ordinance it shall be entirely offered up in smoke to the Lord. So every cereal offering of the priest shall be burned totally. It shall not be eaten. Now what's the idea here? The idea is that priests cannot mediate for themselves. The priests can mediate on behalf of Israel and bring Israel's offerings to the Lord, and then because they are servants, they receive part of it back. But they can't mediate for themselves. And what they give, they don't receive any of it back. They give it all to the Lord. And so they have to respect the hierarchy and not take anything upon themselves. Man does not feed himself. God feeds man. And so the priests don't mediate for themselves is the general idea here. Now then we come to a long section, chapter 624 to 721, which is the distributions to the priests. And the general idea here in the third aspect of the covenant creation model is the distribution of goods. God distributed out the creation to various parts and then assigned laws. This is what you do with what I've given you. And that's the idea here. We have three sections, the law of the purification offering, the law of the reparation offering, and the law of the peace offering. And each of these explains which parts the priests are allowed to keep and what they're to do with the rest of it. So what's distributed to them and the laws binding that distribution is the general idea. The purification offering rules are set out in verses 24 to 30. Remember the purification offering is given to cleanse the furniture, well, the altars actually, the altars and environments of the tabernacle. And that's because these things become defiled and God becomes angry. So when that is brought, it says that in verse 25, it's slain where the burnt offering is slain. And the priest who offers it for sin gets to eat it. Now, he can't eat it all because that's too much food for one person to eat. So after he's had his fill in verse 29, every male from among the priests may eat it. It is most holy. So only the priests can eat it, and they have to eat it in the holy environment. They can't take any of it home. But it is for them to have for lunch while they're working. It also says in verse 27 that anyone who touches his flesh becomes consecrated or holy, and when any of his blood splashes on a garment, then in a holy place you shall wash what was splashed on. So, if you're a layman and you accidentally come in contact with this sin offering or some of the blood gets on your garment, then you have to wash it off inside there and become deconsecrated and hope that the Lord does not take into account what's happened. 
It says in verse 28, The earthenware vessel in which it's boiled is broken. If it's boiled in a bronze vessel, then it shall be scoured and rinsed in water. That's because the heat purges the impurity out of the meat so that it can be eaten, but then the impurity goes into the vessel itself, and the vessel has to be either cleansed or broken. Well, that's what the priests get to have. That's what's distributed to them, and that's the laws that they're bound by. Very careful to make sure that God's scent is cleansed and that all the uncleanness is removed. Then there's the reparation offering. We're told a little bit more about it. You sprinkle the blood on the altar when you slay it, and then you offer up the fat to the Lord. And then, again, the same rules apply. The priest who offers it up gets to eat it, and then what he doesn't eat, the rest of the priests can share, but they have to eat it in the holy environments. They can't take it home. Then we come, as a little bit of additional information here in verses 8, 9, and 10, it says that the skin of these offerings, burnt offerings, everything but the peace offering, the hide of the animal goes to the priest who does the work. And then it says the grain offering that's baked belongs to the priest who presents it, but the grain offering that's dry, uh, the cereal offering that's just brought in as dry flour, that goes into the flour bin for all the sons of Aaron to share alike. Now then we move to the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings. And here we have the three kinds of peace offerings that we looked at before. The Thanksgiving offering that has to be eaten on the same day because it's like Passover. And then there is the offering for fulfilling a vow, like the Nazarite vow, and the free will offering. That's whenever you want. And it can be eaten for a couple of days, but you can't eat it on the third day. It has to be burned up. And we're told what part the priest gets. The priest gets to eat part of it. And that's actually given in the next section. But here we are just given laws for how the sacrifice is conducted and what the priests are to do regarding it. All right, then we can look at the fourth section, the fourth speech that the Lord makes in chapter 7, verses 22 to 26. And this has to do with sanctions. We would expect some form of Sabbath rest or witness bearing or evaluations and sanctions to come at this point, and that's what we find. It has to do with eating fat and eating blood. And the idea is that if you eat the fat of an ox, sheep, or goat, or of any animal, then you will be cut off from the people, and you'd have to bring sacrifice and be restored. And if you eat any blood, either a bird or animal, in any of your dwellings, then you'll be cut off from the people and you would have to bring appropriate sacrifices to be restored. The fat belongs to God, and the blood is not to be eaten. And if you do, then there are judgments against you. You can eat the meat, but you may not eat the fat or the blood. Now, that doesn't mean fat that's mixed in with meat. It means these particular fat parts that are described in the law. The fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat on them. That's in chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. And the lobe of the liver... So those are the parts that belong to God. Even if they're not sacrifices, even if you kill them to eat them somewhere else, you still can't eat those parts because they belong to the Lord. That was the rule. That's what God had claimed. He claims the innermost parts of a man, and he claims the blood or life of the man. Finally, we come to laws saying to honor God. And if we honor God, then we honor his priests. 
And that has to do with honoring parents so that you live long and honoring God with your money, not coveting. And here we have, in terms of the idea of succession being the fifth point of the covenant, then we have the priests here who are to receive God's honor. And there are two basic ways in which these contributions are made, and they're made from the peace offerings. Verses 29 and following, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, He who offers the sacrifice of his peace offerings to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hands are to bring food offerings to the Lord. He shall bring the fat with the breast, that the breast may be presented as a wave offering before the Lord. The priest shall offer up in fat the fat in smoke on the altar, but the breast shall belong to Aaron and his sons. And you will give the right thigh to the priest as a heave offering from among the sacrifices of your peace offerings. The one among the sons of Aaron who offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat, that right thigh shall be his as his portion. For I have taken the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering from the sons of Israel from the sacrifices of their peace offerings and given them to Aaron the priest and his sons as they are due forever from the sons of Israel. Well, now, there's a problem here. We've already seen that there are other things mistranslated in Leviticus, and here we have it again. There is no heave offering. The word just means contribution, and it's used for all kinds of contributions that are not heaved up or lifted up or anything else. And the idea here is that the priest who helps you do the sacrifice and with whom you sit down and have the fellowship meal, he gets to have the right thigh or the right leg. And it's just a contribution. There's no ritual connected with it. And so modern translations sometimes have the word contribution instead of heave offering, and that's a preferable translation. Now, the breast is taken off, and it's given to God by offering it to God, and then it's given back by God to all the priests as a whole, so they all get to share it. And that's called a wave offering, but here again, it's a mistranslation. The older view is that this breast was waved toward the Lord's throne and then back again in a forward-backward motion. We now know that it was basically waved up and down, probably not very high because all of these things were piled up together on your hands or on a dish sitting on your hands. We will see examples later in Leviticus of wave offerings that are very complicated. In fact, we'll see it in just a little while. Why don't we just glance ahead at chapter 8, verses 25 and 26. Moses took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat on the entrails and the lobe of the liver and the two kidneys and their fat and the right thigh and from the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened cake and one cake of bread mixed with oil and one wafer and placed them on top of all these portions of fat and the right thigh. And then he put all of this stuff on the hands of Aaron and on the hands of his sons and presented them as a wave offering before the Lord. Now, if you have that much stuff piled on your hands, it's pretty hard to wave it forward and back, but you can at least gently move it up and down, giving it to God and then receiving it back from him. And recent studies have shown that indeed that is what the Hebrew word, especially in cognate languages, implies. And so the idea here is that this is given to God and then received back from him and given to the priests. At any rate, the fifth point here is to honor God, to honor his priests, not to be covetous, to give them what they deserve as their pay for doing the work. Now we come to Leviticus 8 through 10, the consecration of the priests as the new administrators of the kingdom. 
And this will be our concern now. Chapters 8 through 10 give us the consecration and installation and the beginning of the work done by Aaron and his sons. And this passage generally takes the form of a recreation. There are a great many parallels here to what we would read, what we can read in Genesis chapters 2, particularly chapter 2, concerning the creation of Adam. Of course, this situation is a great deal more complicated. It comes later in history. The symbolic arrangement of the tabernacle and the sacrifices and everything else is different, and much has grown and become more complicated than what was originally the case with the very first creation of the very first man. Nevertheless, there are numerous parallels that we can see, enough to where we're justified in seeing this passage as the recreation of a new Adam in a new garden with new tasks, or with the same old tasks in a new period of history. Now, your notes give you just a walk through this first chapter, chapter number 8, the consecration of Aaron, and we'll just walk through and follow it, reading and commenting. This will also give us a good picture of how these sacrifices were actually carried out and will enable us once again to try to master the details of the sacrificial system. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and two rams, and a basket of unleavened bread. This is all the equipment that we're going to need, and assemble all the congregation to the doorway of the tent of meeting. So Moses did just as the Lord had commanded him. And when the congregation was assembled to the doorway of the tent of meeting, Moses said to the congregation, and these would have been the elders of the congregation, not all two million people, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded to do. Then Moses, after assembling the congregation here, had Aaron and his sons come near and wash them with water. Why? Well, not just to get them clean, but because the ground was cursed in the Old Testament, it needed to be washed off and made completely clean. Again, this makes you like a newborn baby, completely washed off and clean, because that's one of the first things you do with the baby. The Bible itself speaks of this in Ezekiel 16. And, of course, it also means that the curse is being rolled off of them, and they will now be prepared for their consecration. And then in verse 7, Moses clothed Aaron. He put the tunic on him and girded him with a sash and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied him with the artistic band of the ephod with which he tied him, girded him with the artistic band of the ephod with which he tied to him. And he placed the breast piece on him. In the breast piece he put the urim and the thummim and he placed the turban on his head and on the turban at his front he placed the golden plate, the holy crown, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So he got him dressed up in his garments of glory and beauty, as they're called. Here we have the new Adam, all created and ready to go, but not yet empowered by the Holy Spirit. Well, we've got to have a garden for this Adam, and so in verses 10 and 11 we anoint the tabernacle, which has been built, but is still just a bunch of dead cloth and wood, but now it's going to be anointed. Moses then took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it, and consecrated them, and sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, and anointed the altar and all of its utensils, and the basin, labor of cleansing, and its stand, to consecrate them. Now the oil represents the Holy Spirit, and the oil coming down on all of these things means that they're quickened and made alive and consecrated to spiritual service. The Lord fills the tabernacle, and the oil is poured on everything to be a symbol of that. Well, now we have our Adam lying on the ground made of the dust of the earth, and now the Spirit will breathe into him. It says in verse 12, 
he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. So that coming of the oil on Aaron is like the spirit coming on Adam and breathing new life into him. And all of these are creation and recreation images. Well, Adam needed a helper, and that was Eve, and Aaron has helpers as well. Now that Aaron has been set up in office, or has been anointed and consecrated anyway, a beginning of his consecration, then in verse 13, next Moses had Aaron's sons come near and clothed them with tunics and girded them with sashes and bound caps on them, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So now the helpers who are fitted to serve and assist Aaron, are brought near. Remember that in the family situation, the wife is the helper to the husband, but in the military situation, the commander is the helper to the king. And in the priestly situation, the other sons of Aaron are his assistants, and in a more general way, the Levites are the helpers to the priests. And these are all patterns, uh, garden patterns, that you'll find in the Bible. So, Aaron's sons are set up as helpers suitable for him. And then... Once Adam had been set up in the garden, animals were brought to him for him to name and to deal with. And that's exactly what happens next. We have animals brought to Aaron, only this time they are sacrifices. The animals have taken on additional meaning. The first sacrifice that's brought in verse 14 to 17 is for purification. Aaron has to cleanse the tabernacle area, the altar in this case, a bronze altar, before he can come in and minister to it because his sins defiled it. Now, the sins of a high priest actually defile the golden altar. Remember, they penetrate on into the holy place and are a more serious defilement. But Aaron has not been the high priest up to this point. He's still a layman who's becoming a high priest. So at this point, his sins have only defiled the brazen altar, and so the bull that he brings, the blood of it is only put on the brazen altar. So we read in verse 14, And then Moses brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the purification offering. I have to keep translating this as I read it. And next Moses slaughtered it. Actually, it should say he slaughtered it. Aaron would have been the one to slaughter it. And Moses took the blood and with his finger put some of it around on the horns of the altar and purified the altar. This would have been the brazen altar and he poured out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it that is to cover the defilement the defacing of it and he also took all the fat that was on the entrails and the lobe of the liver and the two kidneys and their fat and they were offered up in smoke on the altar as God's portion but the bull and its hide and its flesh and its refuse he burned in the fire outside the camp as the Lord had commanded Moses because it was the high priest or priestly sin then he presented the ram of the burnt offering. That comes next. Now you can bring yourself in and consecrate yourself to the Lord through the burnt offering. Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he slaughtered it, and then Moses sprinkled the blood around the altar. Remember, the layman slaughters it and the priest. In this case, Moses is acting as the priest, and Aaron and his sons are the layman. So Aaron slaughters the animal, and Moses sprinkles the blood around on the altar, and Aaron cuts the ram into pieces. And Moses offers up the head in pieces and the soot in smoke. And after Aaron had washed the entrails and legs with water, then Moses offered up the whole ram in smoke on the altar. It was a burnt offering for a soothing aroma, a food offering to the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Remember, that's what the burnt offering is like. Well, then we have a second ram, which is a ram of ordination, an ordination offering. And this is a form of peace offering, but there's special provisions in connection with it. And we'll look at those right now. The ordination offering, Aaron and his sons laid their hands on it, and he slaughtered it, Aaron slaughtered it, and then Moses 
took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and the big toe of his right foot. And then he had Aaron's sons come near and Moses put some of the blood on the lobe of their right ears, on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. Then Moses sprinkled the rest of the blood around the altar. What's going on there? Well, what's going on is Passover. The angel of death has to see the blood visibly displayed in order to pass over. And when Moses' son was circumcised in Exodus 4, the blood was smeared on his foot or leg, and the angel left off trying to kill him and passed him by. And then, of course, at Passover, the blood was put visibly on the doorposts of the house so that they were passed by. Well, remember that a peace offering, and that's what this is, is a Passover is a peace offering. And in this case, Aaron and his sons are going to be the ones to draw near to God, and that's a big threat because God stands ready to avenge sin. And so part of their anointing is to have this blood put visibly on their ear, their thumb, and their foot in that order. The head is the most important part, and the foot is, the so to speak, the least important part of the body. And this protects them from the wrath of God. They're going to be coming near to God, but God will know that the blood has been put on them, a blood of the sacrifice of the Passover, and therefore he will pass over them, and they'll be able to stand in his presence. Well then, in keeping with the laws for the peace offering, Moses took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and the lobe of the liver and the two kidneys and their fat and their right thigh. And from the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened cake and one cake of bread mixed with oil and one wafer and placed them on the portions of fat and on the right thigh and put all these in the hands of Aaron, probably on a dish, but a dish big enough to put on Aaron's hands and on the hands of his son and presented them as a lifted offering before the Lord. So these are God's gifts. And then Moses also took the breast and presented it for a lifted offering before the Lord. And it was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses is the only functioning priest in this situation, so he gets all of the lifted offering of the breast. Well, then we consecrate the garments. The men themselves have been consecrated. All that remains is that their garments be consecrated. Now, garments in the Bible, robes have to do with your office. Adam did not have an office, and that's why he was naked. He was supposed to be faithful to God, and God would give him a garment. But he wasn't, and so God clothed him in the skins of beasts. However, the garments that Aaron and his sons have on are not made from animals. They're made from vegetables. They're linen, and they don't represent sin, but they represent righteousness and glory. They're like the robe that Joseph had on that his father gave him and the robe that Pharaoh gave him. God has given these robes to these men as garments of glory and beauty as the signs of their offices. And so now they are also anointed. It says in verse 30, Moses took some of the anointing oil and some of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron, that is, on his garments, on his sons, the garments of his sons with him. And he consecrated Aaron, his garments, his sons, and the garments of his sons with him. So there's an additional consecration that weds them to their clothes. And that wedding of the man to his clothes means that they now fill their offices. And everything is now set up. The Spirit has anointed the tabernacle, filled it with his presence. He's anointed the men. And now the men are wedded to their office and their clothes are anointed. And they're ready to go to work. But there's one other thing they have to do. Verses 31 to 36. Then Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the doorway of the tent of meeting, doorway, and eat it there together with the bread that's in the basket of the ordination offering, just as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons will eat it. The remainder of the flesh and of the bread you shall burn in the fire. 
You shall not go outside the doorway of the tent of meeting for seven days until the day that the period of your ordination is fulfilled. He will ordain you through seven days. If we were to go back to Exodus 29, we would find that there were sacrifices each day of these seven days. The Lord is commanded to do as has been done this day to make atonement on your behalf. Now we're talking about the Passover and the covering of blood. At the doorway of the tent of meeting, moreover, you shall remain day and night for seven days and do guard duty of the Lord. Your version may say keep the charge of the Lord, but literally it says do guard duty. That you may not die, for so I have been commanded. Thus Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord had commanded through Moses. Now, just a couple of remarks on this. Remaining in the doorway, the doorway symbolizes a place of birth. For obvious reasons, and there are plenty of proof text for that in the scripture, and I can call attention to the work that's done in my book, The Law of the Covenant, for substantiation of that. Staying here in this doorway is an image of their birth into their new office. And that's what they have to do. But additionally, the doorway has to be guarded. The cherubim stood at the doorway of Eden with flaming swords, and these men are going to be like the cherubim. The cherubim are still going to be there in the Holy of Holies guarding God's throne, but at least one of these outer doors, the outer doorway of the tent of meeting, Aaron and his sons will guard. They're kind of beginning to take over some of the cherubic tasks that Adam failed to do. And they have to do guard duty. It's what Adam failed to do. Adam was told to dress the garden and to guard it. He didn't guard it. He let Satan in. Now they have to guard it. They have to do guard duty for seven days, remaining basically eating and sleeping in the doorway, except when they have specific tasks to do. They'll remain in the doorway and be guards. This is expanded later on in Scripture. You may remember in Chronicles there are whole lists of gatekeepers and others, but this is where Aaron and his sons were the first guards, and they set the pattern for all the later Levitical gatekeepers. Well, this becomes something of a tragedy because you may remember that on the last day, of this doing guard duty, Nadab and Abihu will sin and they will be killed because they failed to do guard duty. Well, what we now have is a new Adam in a new garden and Aaron is now fully consecrated and he's waited out his seven days and he's born again and he's under the blood and he is fully set up in every conceivable way. He's got his garments of glory and beauty, he's robed in righteousness and he's ready to carry out the functions of the priest. And so he does. In chapter 9, Aaron commences his work. In verses 1 to 7, Moses, again, is the one who sets everything up. He calls the congregation together. He tells Aaron, now it's time to start, and this is what we'll do. And Aaron takes all of the required animals and whatnot for the sacrifices and brings them. And then in chapter 9, verses 8 to 14, Aaron offers the sacrifices for himself. Before he can offer the people's sacrifices... He has to offer his own. Before he can purge the tabernacle of the people's defilements and bring a burnt offering on their behalf as a substitute for their sins, first of all, he has to go in and cleanse it for himself, his own sins. And so the first sacrifice is Aaron's purification offering. And this time it's not Moses who offers it on Aaron's behalf, but Aaron offers it on his own behalf. And so in verse 8, Aaron comes near to the altar and slaughters the calf of the purification offering that's for himself. Aaron's sons presented the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood and put some on the horns of the altar. Now, this would have to be the golden altar, I imagine. We're not told particularly. But according to the law, that's where it would have to be. 
and he poured out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar, and then he carried on out the rest of the task. Then he slaughtered the burnt offering, verse 12, and he sprinkled the blood of it around the altar, and he washed it and burned it and did all the things he was supposed to do that we've looked at before. Then, having offered the sacrifices for himself, he offered sacrifices for the people. He presented the people's offering, verse 6, and took the gold of the purification offering that was for the people and slaughtered it and offered it for purification like the first. And then he presented the burnt offering and slaughtered it according to the ordinance. And he presented the grain offering. Remember, the cereal offering goes along with the burnt offering and goes on top of it. And then he slaughtered the ox and the ram, sacrifice of peace offerings that were for the people. And he took the fat portions and they offered them up as smoke on the altar, but the breasts and the right thigh Aaron presented as lifted offerings before the Lord as the Lord had commanded. So there we are. Uh, the breasts were presented as lifted offering and the thigh was given as a contribution. And verse 21 condenses that, but that's the idea. And so... He enters into his work, and having cleansed the tabernacle and offered sacrifices for the people and thus restored the nation once again from its sin, Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And then he stepped down after making this purification offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And then God sent out his own fire and consumed the burnt offering and portions of fat on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Now, we've said before that the fire on the altar was God's fire. It represents his judgment. And here we see it. There apparently already was a fire burning on the altar because they'd been offering sacrifices for several days. And that fire would have had to be started by God at some point. But now to reinforce it and to add his own seal to it, fire comes out from before the Lord again and reignites everything on the altar, instantly consumes everything that's there, and the people see that God approves it. Instead of the fire striking them, instead of the fire burning them up, the fire goes and burns the sacrifices, and they are spared. And that's the meaning. The sacrifice takes the judgment that we deserve. But then you've got to keep right on going because in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. They sinned and God's fire consumed them instead of the substitute. Now what is this strange fire? Well, it says fire that God had not commanded them. But... In terms of what the Bible says as a whole about the fire on the altar, it seems we can infer without undue speculation that this was fire that did not come from the bronze altar. It was fire that they themselves have ignited. Strange fire, not God's fire. Alien fire. And that fire represented their own judgments. They put their own judgments up before the Lord, and their own judgments did not stand before His. It wasn't just accidental folly. It was an attempt to assert themselves. Now that we're priests, we can do what we want. Now that we're priests, we have an inside track with God and we can manipulate God. Now that we're priests, we're important too. Our judgments are just like God's judgments. Better listen to us. We're priests. That's the way they thought. And so they took their own fire that they themselves had lit, representing their own judgments, and they waved it in God's face, expecting God to treat them as equals. And they found out that they were not equals to him. Now, we've said that there's kind of a creation idea here. 
I think that in a general kind of a way, this is the fall of Cain. Remember Cain and Abel? Abel brought a true sacrifice and God accepted it, but Cain brought the wrong sacrifice and was not accepted. Well, here are Aaron's sons. He has four sons. Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And two of the sons offer the wrong sacrifice and are not accepted. Parallels are kind of strong. And in the notes you'll notice that I pointed out that in Exodus 32 we have the fall of Aaron. And then what we've looked at in chapter 8 is like a recreation of him and a restoration of him to the Garden of Eden. And then that kind of like the clothing of skins that God put on Adam and Eve when he, even though he cast them out, he still made a promise to him. In this case, Aaron is clothed and let back in. But now we have the sons in rebellion, and it's like the rebellion of Cain. Well, if you don't agree with that as a model, uh, you don't have to, but it seems to me that that is part of what's going on here. Well, these two boys were destroyed, and everybody is shocked. Just a half an hour, 15 minutes after they shout for joy when God's fire consumes the substitute instead of them, now they are stunned to see God consume and destroy these two young men. Remember, Aaron is probably about 83 at this point, so these weren't boys. At any rate, they are destroyed. Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people... I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept quiet. And Moses had Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Aaron's uncle Uzziel, the more distant relatives, carry those sons away from the front of the sanctuary to the outside of the camp. And so they were expelled from the camp, just as Cain was cast out of the land of Eden and went into a land of wandering. Well, then Moses said to Aaron and his sons Eleazar and Ithamar, Don't uncover your heads nor tear your clothes so that you not die that he may not become wrathful against all the congregation. For your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, will bewail the burning that the Lord has brought about. But you shall not even go out from the doorway of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the Lord's anointing oil is upon you. So they were not allowed to go through any ceremonial mourning. Why? Well, not because God is cruel, and not because there is some big virtue, moral virtue, in holding it in and not mourning. That's not the idea. The idea is that in the presence of God there has to be joy. And they were expected to symbolize that by not mourning for the dead. These laws are given in more detail later on, that the priests are not allowed to mourn. We'll get to them later in Leviticus. But it starts here. They're not allowed to mourn because they are in God's presence, and because of the ordination ceremonies, they can't leave and go out and mourn somewhere else. The rest of the congregation will mourn in their stead. Then the Lord speaks to Aaron. This is the only time he does in the book of Leviticus. And he tells Aaron not to drink on the job. Don't drink wine or strong drink, neither your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you may not die. Well, the idea here is not that it's wrong to drink alcohol, because there are plenty of examples of it in the rest of the Bible, and we're commanded to drink in God's presence in the New Testament. Part of the idea here is that they are still kept at arm's length from God. We're allowed to come into God's presence and sit down in the Holy of Holies, and drink wine in the Lord's Supper without a threat. But they were not allowed to come in that close to God in the Old Testament, and part of the reason they weren't allowed to drink wine was to signify that to them, that they were still excluded. There's an additional reason here, and that is that the priest's job is to distinguish between the holy and the profane and between the unclean and the clean. And if his mind is clouded while he's on the job, then he can't make those distinctions and applications properly. 
So there's a general principle here of not drinking on the job that applies to everybody. <laughs> um, we do drink in worship, but we don't drink on the job is sort of the idea. And then, so as to teach the sons of Israel all the statutes, that was also their job to teach the law. And they needed to be clear-headed to do that. Well, then Moses spoke to Aaron and his surviving sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, and said, Even though you've sinned, you're not going to be cast out of the Garden of Eden. You're still going to have access to the trees and to the food that's on the trees. And let me reassure you of that. And so Moses tells them that they can still eat the grain offering in the holy place. And then he says the breast of the wave offering and the thigh, the wave offering, the lifted offering and the thigh of the contribution, you may eat in a clean place. That is not just the tabernacle, but you can take it out, you and your sons and your daughters with you and your wives. You can take it home and eat it there with your families. And the thigh that's offered by a contribution and the breast that's offered by being lifted up they will bring along with the food offerings the portions of fat and so forth and so on. This is for you and your sons. So some of the foods you can eat in the holy place and some of it you can take home and you'll still have access to all the food of the garden that I have promised you since you are priests. Finally, we have one more little incident here in closing. It says in verses 16 to 20, Moses searched carefully for the goat of the purification offering, and behold, it had been burned up. Now, this was the one for the people, not for any particular leader of the congregation. And it had been burned up. And actually, it was supposed to be eaten. It's holy. And Moses says, you should have eaten it. This blood was not brought inside into the sanctuary. You should certainly have eaten it in the sacred area, just as I commanded. Aaron spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, this very day they presented their purification offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. When things like these have happened to me, if I had eaten a purification offering today, would that have been good in the sight of the Lord? And when Moses heard that, it seemed good in his sight. Now, it's kind of confusing what's going on here, and I don't exactly understand it, but it seems that Aaron is saying, Look, it would be improper for me to sit down and enjoy this meal in view of what's happened. And I don't think the Lord would be happy with it either. And Moses agreed with him. And what I see in this is that the law is given, but there are all kinds of new situations that come up from time to time, and we have to be spiritually sensitive to know how to apply the law in these new situations. Well, here we have the priests. We have the portions of the sacrifice that they get to eat, and we have them ordained and installed, and then we have this dark incident of a falling away from responsibility. But God has restored them, and now we will move to one of their primary tasks, to set the distinction between clean and unclean, and that will be our topic in the next lecture. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.